From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Professor Karen Cox joins us to discuss what feels like political regression in the state of North Carolina. And after that, Ross Harris, Executive Director of the North Carolina Institute for Political Leadership, will talk about the mission of the Institute and bringing more civility to our factious political discourse. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. When you think of North Carolina, what comes to mind? Is it ACC basketball or virtual religion in the Tar Heel State? Is it the city of Charlotte, the second most important financial city in America, making it one of the most important financial cities globally? Is it the research triangle that connects Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill? that's quickly becoming the Silicon Valley of the East? Or is it regressive politics? That seems to be the reputation that North Carolina has been cultivating of late. From voter suppression to the controversial HB2, such laws appear to be incongruent with a state that once touted a proud and progressive history. And before leaving office recently, Outgoing Governor Pat McCrory signed a bill that would strip incoming Governor Roy Cooper of some powers. These and other instances led University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill political science professor Andrew Reynolds to declare that North Carolina is no longer classified as a democracy. Joining me to discuss the political and social direction of North Carolina is P Professor Karen Cox. Professor Cox teaches history at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and she recently wrote an op-ed on today's topic for the New York Times. Professor Karen Cox, welcome to the public morality. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. You wrote a piece not long ago in the New York Times that seemed to suggest there are two North Carolinas, one with a, a rich history of political moderation to progressive examples, and then the other of, uh, shall we say, political regression. It was, is that fair, or how would you describe it? Well, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's fair. I think we've had a history of both. Um, uh, and um, in, in recent years, and especially since 2010, we've been in an era of regression. Um, Prior to that, I think we were might have been moving in that direction, but until um, there was Republican control of the GOP and the gerrymandering that followed, um, uh, you know, there there was an opportunity, I think, for um, you know people to work across the aisle. You know, I mean, it, it's so easy for those who don't live uh, in, in North Carolina. You and I have the privilege of living here. Uh, to define the state by the by the latest sensational news story, but you sort of touched on it earlier. I mean, this is a state with a with a very I would say progressive legacy. If you think about the fusion movement at the turn of the century, at the same time when Alabama Governor George Wallace was uh, touting the virtues of segregation in that same week, North Carolina Governor Terry Sanford was saying something very very the exact opposite. In fact, so. How do we move away from that in that direction, sort of to this trajectory? Is that just the Republican legislature, or is it more to it? Well, I think it's been <clears throat> seems to have been in the works for a while. I mean, I think we could um, look at maybe some of the the Reagan Revolution in the '80s. Um, even though we may, you know, continue to have a Democratic governor in those years, we had um, Jim Hunt. And uh, uh, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, but then, um, you know, during the, in, in the, that same decade, we had um, uh, uh, Jesse Helms mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as our, our senator, our longtime senator. And 
and the uh, Senate race between he and um, Jim Hunt turned really ugly in 84. And I think we've been, you know, on a sort of a downhill slide ever since. Um, you know, there are a lot of things. You can't pinpoint one, you know, one particular factor. Uh, there's a number of them. Um, but it seems to be that one, you know, things built on, on top of one another um, uh, since that time. Um, but, yes, we had had, you know, progressive uh, governors before, um, Terry Sanford, as you had mentioned. Um, Jim Hunt was a very progressive governor, um, you know, wasn't afraid <laughs> to uh, give support to public education, for example. Um, and then and then we've just um, moved away from that. And in some ways it feels as if um, that um, – you know, the control of our, our government almost comes from outside of it, from monetary influences by, um, you know, conservative uh, groups like the Pope Foundation um, and uh, and just a movement away from that. And it's become even more hardened uh, in the last uh, half a dozen years. Um, and, uh, and I think it's also in part a reaction to the growing diversity of our state, um, uh, sort of a backlash to that in an attempt to maintain control uh, <clears throat> by, um, I mean, you know, to be frank about it, to be, by um, our white male leaders uh, in the GOP. Well, so I'm, I'm, uh, since you mentioned, I'm going to segue to this now. Who is Art Pope and what is the Pope Foundation? Um, Art Pope is a you know a conservative, uh, wealthy individual who has something called the Pope Foundation and the Civitas Institute here in North Carolina, and it's uh, it's it's uh, on a state level what the Koch brothers have been nationally, and um, in which they you know fund conservative candidates uh, as a way to get their agenda passed. So our uh, Art Pope was uh, behind a lot of the the election that brought in a, a really conservative uh, GOP in the state legislature. He was bankrolling um, Pat McCrory, and um, even uh, I believe he was the Secretary of the Treasury or some, something like that. Um, um, he he received a cabinet post uh, in Pat McCrory's administration, uh, and so um, and uh, and so you know they're. They've been involved in, in um, reshaping uh, North Carolina politics and pushing um, the state and state government, at least, in in the direction of a uh, of a hard right. And you also, in your, in your New York Times piece, you uh, suggested that the infamous uh, hands commercial by Jesse Helms sort of was a uh, mark, sort of an end of uh, political civility in the state. Um, First, can you say a little bit about that advertisement, and why do you see that uh, event as a particular demarcation? Well, it was uh, it's just one that I recall very vividly when it when it showed up um, on, on television. It was a uh, basically a you know a, a commercial that shows a, a a white man filling out. You know, you don't see the man; you just see the, the hands, the white hands filling out a job application, and the uh, dressed in a kind of a flannel shirt, it suggest, and the suggestion of the commercial was that um, that affirmative action somehow in these uh, these quotas, as uh, um, that was the you know thing at the time, that, that quotas were were uh, preventing white men who were um, from getting jobs because they would have to be filled uh, with a you know a racial minority, for example, and so. And so that was a, <clears throat> in my mind, it was a clear, uh, it was it, it sent sort of a, a race, uh, racist message, um, and it, it got attention uh, nationally. I mean that, you know, because um, this was at the at the time that he Jesse Helms was um, uh, campaigning against Harvey Gantt, an African our African American mayor of Charlotte, the the um, the first one, and. Um, you know, so those messages I think uh, resonated probably uh, with conservative white voters. That if you, somehow they were being left behind. 
Well, that that sounds very. Uh, we've heard that. I'm talking about the, the latter piece about white voters being left behind, the forgotten man, if you will. I mean, that's sort of what uh, was the narrative uh, following this election. Oh yes. Um, if anything, it feels like a reaction to that. I, I you know, the within North Carolina, I'm not. This is uh, um, an interesting thing because. Um, We've talked. Um, one of the things I talk about in that piece is the, that the is um, you know that the Democratic Party sort of has forsaken the state and and not really made the effort and and, and had much of a ground game in working with um, uh, voters, uh, those rural white voters, for example, um, speaking to them. Um, the issues that rural white uh, voters are, are are faced with are the same ones that minority voters are, are are being faced with and so um really they should be on the same page rather than set up as uh, uh you know uh, as against one another so um but yes you know that's that's the message uh, that was being uh, uh certainly being used in in the, in the national elections um and but we had already had uh, control. I mean, the GOP already had control um, of a state legislature even even before this most recent presidential election. Yeah. You mentioned the diversity of the state. So you have, um, uh, you know, so, so the rural white voters, um, so the low-income minority voters having similar interests. But then you go to, say, well, I'm, we're broadcasting here from Winston-Salem, but if, if you go to what would be east of us, uh, you have the Raleigh-Durham-Chapel Hill area, which is becoming, in my view, the Silicon Valley of the East. You go down to Charlotte, where you are, uh, you have the second uh, most important financial city in the United States, which makes it one of the most important in the world. You would, you would think a state that had those types of things going for it would be more forward-thinking. And, and so, but as of late, we've seen the opposite. In, 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 well, I, I, I do believe that, that um, you know, that the people of the state, the people who live in those areas and the business um, leaders are certainly more uh, forward-thinking um, than the state, than the representatives in the state legislature over these issues. They seem to be still fighting culture wars by putting forth, you know, uh, a, a law like HB2, um, you know, but we are uh, a growing, uh, our, you know, the, the, the population in the state is uh, increasingly diverse. Uh, the fastest growing population, um, you know, since 2000 has been the Latino uh, Hispanic population. Um, uh, we increasingly have people moving here from outside of North Carolina um, <clears throat> from places like California or New York or whatever, um, uh, that are diversifying not just um, racially and ethnically, but also politically. Uh, but the but the way that the uh, districts are have been gerrymandered is 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 preventing their uh, voices from being heard. You, you know, other states have um, put forth, um, shall we say, uh, egregious legislation. But, you know, on the day that you wrote um, your piece in the New York Times, well, the day it ran, uh, to, to, to the right of your column, um, uh, Times columnist uh, David uh, Leonard also wrote a piece emphasizing North Carolina. Why do you think so much attention is given toward North Carolina? Is it because of the way I sort of described it earlier? Be, you, we see the state differently? What, why, why, why North Carolina so much attention on some of its controversial I legislation? Yeah, I, I think that because North Carolina had been uh, long perceived as this progressive state in a sea of, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, southern states that were, were regarded as less progressive, you know, that, that you know, there, you know, people were wondering what's going on. It's, it's been a state that invited business. It's been a state that, uh, you know, been pro-business but also pro-education that had, you know, uh, you know, a progressive history legislatively, you know, and, and, and it seems, um, you know, people are just flummoxed by what is, what has taken place here. 
But, I mean, there were signs of that, you know, in 2008, although Obama, you know, won North Carolina was by a very thin margin. And by 2012, Romney, you know, had the state had flipped back the other direction. Um, and so there was already evidence of, of that change taking place, but it felt like people weren't paying attention to it. So now it just seems, oh, you know, now that we're at, at the place we're at, people seem shocked by it. But it's, it's, it's something that's been creeping up on us for a long time. And so I think that, but I do think that the reason people are, are, are taken aback is <clears throat> really has to do with the um, uh, progressive history, the recent progressive history of our state. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Karen Cox, history professor at University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and author of the forthcoming book, Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South. Now, I've got, just based on the title, I've got to ask you to say something <laughs> about the book, because I immediately had uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil came to my mind when I just read the title. So plug your book, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had uh, several people actually... Uh, make the same connection. Um, it, to me, it's a, it's it's that, and it's also sort of a a, a gray gardens um, from <laughs> from the deep south in 1932. So it's a it's a it's a true crime story. It's a story of the decline of the planter aristocracy. That um, you know a, a a story of racial injustice during the Jim Crow era, and. Uh, you know, I said if I could write the own, my own, uh, you know, blurb on the back of the book, I would say Faulkner was telling the truth. <laughs> well, you know what? I think you should. I like that already. You know, <laughs> you, you got me already. Uh, and in fact, when it's out, we'll have to ha we'll have to have you back on to talk about. That would be lovely. Yeah, you know, we'll have to have you back on. Um, get, getting back to the to the to the sort of the issue at hand here. Um, in the aftermath of the uh, Supreme Court, um, uh, Shelby County versus Holder, where they sort of stripped away a lot of the provisions in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, North Carolina was labeled by many um, uh, um, legal experts as having the most egregious of what, uh, of what people view as voter suppression laws. Uh, and then right after, and then, then after that, the state enacted, as you mentioned earlier, HB2. Um, so, my, I guess my, I have a twofold question. First of all, do you have any uh, update on where um, that first, of the, the voter um, uh, suppression laws, wh where are those in the courts? Do you have any idea where those are uh, in the courts right um, now? I'm not. I mean, I know there was, a, you know, uh, uh, a higher court had uh, put a stop to those uh, suppression laws. So that we still had some, you know, not as, uh, uh, as you said, some egregious, you know, cut to uh, voter rights uh, in terms of things like, you know, early voting, Sunday voting, things like that. Um, the last I um, heard, you know, that the the districts were supposed to be redrawn, and so that uh, uh, so that that as well would be uh, would may mark a change in the in the way. Um, the state legislature looks um, in 2017. But then, you know, right before he left office, McCrory tried to put a halt to that, to the redrawing of districts. So I think some of these things are still up in the air. And then HB2, you know, there was a deal <laughs> between Charlotte and the legislature that, this, that this, if Charlotte repealed its, its uh, local ordinance around uh, – uh, bathrooms um, that the um, legislature would repeal HB2. Charlotte did its part and the legislature didn't. So I'm not sure where that stands because uh, my understanding was that the uh, uh, <clears throat> locally we were, you know, you know the, the repeal was dependent on, upon what the um, uh, legislature did and if they backed out then uh, supposedly Charlotte would back out. So uh, and reinstate its ordinance. So uh, that remains to be seen. I've I, I just got to ask you this. Uh, when Charlotte passed its ordinance initially, uh, what changed 
in the city? I mean, did the sun not shine? Did gas prices rise? <laughs> I mean, could, you, could you tell me what changed? What changed in, in someone's life when that passed? None as far as I could tell. I mean, I, I think what, the only thing that changed is um, people got upset and, and you know, and, uh, you know, it became this issue, you know, of protecting women and children from predators in the bathroom and things like that. I mean, uh, to be honest, there probably been people, you know, using um, <laughs> bathrooms that, uh, you know, not according to the uh, – you know, the way they were born um, uh, for years and years, and people didn't even say say anything about it. So um, nothing really had changed. I mean, Charlotte in some ways is, you know, very progressive and along those lines. And, I mean, we have um, – Charlotte has, um, you know, the largest um, uh, gay pride event in the entire state, the um, – the city of Charlotte shuts down for two days and over something like 120, 130,000 people um, show up in Charlotte to celebrate gay pride. So I, you know, it's, it's a city that, um, uh, and it's, and this has lots of corporate sponsors, you know, bank of America, food lion, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, uh, lots of the banks and a lot of churches are in support of pride. They participate in the pride parade. So it's, <clears throat> you know, you know that that particular ordinance is probably very representative of the mindset of Charlotteans. And it helped me with the timeline be, uh, because while um, this while the Pride festivities have been going on in the history of Charlotte, uh, Governor McCory at some point was the mayor of Charlotte during that time, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes, and he and he refused to acknowledge it during his tenure. And um, there was a time when um, you know it you know it was very small and it, it didn't have any support. And you would see more you know um, you know the um, the churches that show up with their hateful right. signs and things. You know now it's just it's it's something completely different. And um, you know so McCrory never um, showed support for. Pride in Charlotte, even though that was, um, you know, it, it began and and continued under um, during his tenure as mayor. Finally, when, when you um, think about the um, the piece that, that you wrote for the New York Times, um, for you, uh, I know you mentioned. Um, so we we talked about the uh, forgot the forgotten man or the forgotten white man uh, is part of the problem. But what's at the root? of this type of legislation, uh, whether it's the voter suppression laws, it's HB2, or or even with the uh, recent legislature's actions by trying to strip uh, uh, incoming Governor Cooper of some of his uh, powers. What's at the core of all this? That would be me speculating, but... (laughs) That's all we do here on the public rally, (laughs) speculate. (laughs) Well, I... My sense is that there's this, you know, there's that the the those who are currently in charge. There's there's one thing where they haven't had, you know, Republicans haven't had control of state in the General Assembly for however long, right? Like a hundred years was it, or someone they finally came in uh, came into power. So there was this. I think there's some of it is is around that as a way of asserting their power. But the other thing to me, I mean, my my sense of it is that they see the writing on the wall in terms of the diversity of the state, the growing diversity of the state on it in in a variety of ways, whether it's racially, ethnically, um, whether it's a growing like it's an LGBT population. Uh, <clears throat> anything that isn't straight white male um, is, you know, <laughs> you know, it seems we're, you know, we're growing in that direction. So the white population has actually decreased in the same period that the, the Latin, uh, Hispanic uh, population has increased. My sense is that there, it's it's something of a, you know, a a last gasp effort, and who knows how long it'll last. Could last in a, at least another generation. 
when 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 the population uh, there's such a sea change in the population that that they won't be able to have that control anymore. So it seems to me like you know this is just my opinion. It seems like they're trying to set it in set it up in such a way that things won't change for at least a you know a generation. But it it may be that that things turn around before then. Professor Karen Cox, University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and who's already committed to coming back on the public rally to talk about when her book is out, Goat Castle, A True Story of Murder, Race, and the Gothic South. I want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was nice speaking with you. That was Professor Karen Cox. Stay tuned as I speak with Ross Harris, Executive Director of the North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership. Welcome back. It's not uncommon to hear about partisan gridlock. It is prevalent from Washington, D.C. to many state capitals to city councils across the country. In fact, it seems the only way to avoid partisan gridlock is to have one-party dominance. But that concession runs counter to America's form of democracy. My next guest, Ross Harris, believes that the status quo of gridlock need not be. She is the executive director of North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership, whose mission is to educate future political and community leaders in modern campaign strategy, ethical decision-making, and governance such that its participants have a sound grounding in ethical behavior, consensus building, and relationships with current and future leaders. Ross Harris, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we begin with you um, giving us the mission of the North Carolina Institute sure. for Political Leadership? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the easiest way to describe it, uh, our former board chair, uh, Justice Henry Fry, uh, puts it this way, to improve the practice of democracy in North Carolina. And I think that really says it very short and very sweet. Um, that that's really what we're focused on doing and, and bringing that civil discourse back to the practice of politics that I think we've lost. Uh, and so, do you have um, some specific outlines? I mean, like in your fellowship cor- in your fellowship uh, courses, what are some specific out- uh, outcomes that you're looking for? Well, I think what we're what we're looking for the students to come away with, uh, and I'm referring to my, to the fellows program most right. most specifically. But I, I think what we're looking for them to, to, to come away with is a greater understanding of themselves uh, and why they believe what they believe, but importantly, too, a willingness to, um, to accept or a, willing to, a willingness to understand where other people are coming from who have different points of view. Um, uh, I, th- I think we were very clear about saying you don't have to agree with your classmates or with leaders in the public. But you do have to understand where they're coming from and recognize and appreciate that they have as much right for their point of view as you do for yours. Um, and I, and I, think, I, think that's, I think that's the game changer and the life changer for the students. It happened to me uh, running the program. So I, I know from what I speak. Well, let me follow up on that. I think, I think that's an important point uh, to, to stay with for just a moment. It, it, it seems that in our larger culture, from my, my perspective, has transmuted – uh, let's call it respect for the opposition's opinion to mean that you that you're agreeing with the opposition's opinion, and therefore the only way to oppose that is this unwillingness to compromise. Mm-hmm. How, how do you see that? That's interesting. Uh, I hadn't thought quite that way before. Yeah, I, I think there's a um, you know there, there's a lot of anger out there, um, which I think uh, um, just seems to be getting worse. Um, um, and not whether it's anger or frustration or, or what it is. I think it had a lot to do with the, the 2016 election and its outcomes. But I think um, um, uh, you know, people, people they're, they're, they, they have a, there's more of a tendency to dig your heels in and say, well, this is, this is why I believe what I believe, and, and that's important to me, instead of uh, um, you know, uh, you know, letting go a little bit and realizing that, that you can still – be true to your own values while understanding where someone else is coming from. I think people are afraid, as you said, that if they, if they express some tolerance 
um, or interest in the in the opposing view, they feel that they have let themselves down or let others down instead of it makes you a, a bigger and broader person to be able to say, I understand where you're coming from. I may not agree with it, but I respect where you're coming from. Well, I mean, um, in your last answer sounds really what you're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like I said, it, it happened to me. I, I absolutely know, know what I'm speaking about. It, it happened to me. I, I, uh, uh, can I tell you that story? It's please, story. please. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, uh, and it's no secret anybody could, could Google me and know what my background is. But, but uh, a lifelong Democrat, and, and and certainly probably my more younger years, um, um, pro- probably more left to the, to the to the to the side than certainly the middle, which is where I really believe I am now. Um, but but I I I, I did what was uh, and maybe this could be because of age. Who knows? But exactly what I think we're seeing a lot of people do now, and that is labeling people. Um, someone is a Republican, so therefore they must think this. Or someone voted for uh, Hillary, so therefore they must think that. Or mm-hmm. someone who voted for Trump must think this way. Mm-hmm. Inst- instead of instead of really uh, uh, you know, understanding why why they why they did that. And and so for me, um, I, I know that this program has really changed me in, in teaching it. Um, um, I am much more. Well, for, I'm really interested in where people are coming from, and I must admit that I probably wasn't much that way before. But it really fascinates me to understand where people have gotten to um, on their beliefs and where they come from. It just makes you a more educated person and makes you a broader person and a bigger person to understand that. And, and I've, I've told this story many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our board members is John Hood. Uh, who's mm-hmm. a, a, he writes. He writes. Yeah, he writes uh, yeah. in the Muslim Journal. Uh, yeah, he's yeah, he he's does. right next to me on Sundays, and so I, yeah. I know his picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do know his picture, sure. Yeah. And, and uh, um, a conservative col- columnist, he chairs the John Locke Foundation board, and also is president of the Poe Foundation. So if you if you think about those things, yes, I mean, as I used to, you know, I've very much had him labeled as someone that I probably would have absolutely nothing in common with. And um, one of the great, great joys of this program is that you, you, you meet all kinds of people, and John is, on, John is on the board. And I find that I have a lot more in common with him than I ever would have imagined. I enjoy speaking with him. Uh, even when we don't agree, I'm fascinated at, 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 at how he explains his point of view. And so it, when I introduce him in class, he's one of my faculty, you know, I, I tell the students, you know, before I knew John, I said I thought he had three heads and a forked tongue, but right. that was that was me. That was my shortcoming because I had labeled him, and I said, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. So, so when I say this program can change people, I know that because I know what it's done for me, and I see what it does to 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 our students that come out. Uh, how in, um, I hate to reuse the word enlightened, but I think it's a, 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 a um, maybe that's the best word. I, I wouldn't say it's a maturation process. We have. Students all ages, you know, 25 to 70, uh, all across the board. But I think it's just what you find out about yourself. Uh, we call them, we, we teach, you know, we, we, we get some life-changing experiences as well, uh, in addition to, to, the, to the public service experiences they gain. Well, your last point I think is really important. Um, if, you, if you could expand on it, is that uh, you, you've emphasized it twice during this interview already about it's more about me than it is about you because I'm the one who was maybe putting those assumptions mm-hmm. on you. So yes. it's really less about the person who's across the aisle from me as it is about myself. Exactly, exactly. The point I make is we can't change the whole system overnight, um, but, but we can change those that we, that we teach. And hopefully then through their experience with IOPL, they can then help others. If I, if, I, if I graduate 20 people or 40 people a year, rather, then if those 40 people can touch another 10 or another 20, um, then, then that's how this works. So, so uh, you, you, you may never change that person across the aisle, but you sure can change the way you behave. Um, uh, the, the, the old adage in, in management was you, you, can't, you can't change. The only thing you really can change is, is your reaction to someone else, and that's really the only thing that you can change. And so that, that's really what we teach is, 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 is understanding, you know, developing that sense, I guess, of awareness for, um, uh, for your own strengths and weaknesses. And, and I, I think that's an important thing to learn at any age. Um, 
It, it, it's easy to offer um, that the that the political discourse is as bad today as it's ever been. We, we hear that all the time. Yeah. And I was wondering, just two part question: if you accept that, or or if not, I mean, and what role rather does the amount of information that we have access to now play into that perception? Yeah, I think it's more a case of the latter. Someone was telling me the other day, and I can't remember the specifics, so so forgive me, but the, but there were other elections before where there were protests in the streets. Uh, and again, I don't remember. It was a, it was a great, great um, lesson for me, which, of course, I promptly forgot. But, but, but this isn't the first time we've, we've seen some of this kind of behavior. But I think the, 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 the amount of information and the way in which it's distributed and the access to it that we all have, I think, really heightens that. Um, uh, you, know, you, you, you can't run, you can't hide from not only how you feel, but you know, 100,000 of your closest friends feel on social media as well. <laughs> and and, and I, I, really, I really think that's a huge part of it. I, 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 don't, um, I, I really do. Um, and that if there are protests in the streets, for example, um, everybody knew about it as soon as, as soon as it was happening now. You know, 30, 40 years ago, if that were to happen... Was, was probably less known, uh, but 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 now we we know all about it, um, and we and we know about it exactly when it happened. So so um, uh, you know I mean you know, you know pe- people will disagree, and, and that's healthy. I mean we we, we want that, um, um, but I think the uh, the 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 way that news is disseminated and the speed with which it is disseminated makes a big difference. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Ross Harris, Executive Director for the North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership. Um, and, and I guess the topic uh, is, is, uh, may sound to many uh, an oxymoron, but civil, <laughs> civil political discourse. Right. Um, wa- walk us through the Fellows Program. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful program. It's an, it's an 11 weekend program, and the weekends are not consecutive. It takes, it takes place over a five month period, twice a year in the fall and in the spring. And we start out, uh, we, we teach a lot of, uh, well, let me back up. When the program first started 30 years ago, it was really more of a hands-on skills course in how to run for office. And I think it's evolved over the years. We still have some of those hands-on uh, uh, sessions, for example, how to write a press release, how to do a TV commercial, um, how to uh, do a radio interview, some of those kinds of things. But we also have uh, a lot more uh, I would say strategy. Uh, every, every class is interactive. It, it's never just a lecture where you're taking notes. But when I say strategy, it's more um, things that really help you understand you. For example, um, they're asked to do a speech, why I am a dot, dot, dot. And that can be why I'm a Democrat, why I'm a Republican, why I'm unaffiliated. And they have to tell the class exactly you know, how, they, how they got to the point where they are now. And, and the fascinating thing is, what they share about themselves uh, in, in, the, in those speeches. Uh, it, it's more than just, uh, usually, it's, it's more than just um, uh, politically I read these things and I tend to agree with these people. It's more something happened to them in their lives from a, a familial standpoint or, or friends or something that really helps them get to where they are. And, and, and that, I think, is the, uh, the real beauty of the program. Those things happen in conjunction with the practical skills so that so that they do have a good sense of how to run for office if they'd like to run. But as I say, this program really is for people that are interested in public service, mm-hmm. and that can be elected or appointed or volunteer. So not everybody knows, not everybody wants to run for office. I've been involved with politics for a long time. I know I don't want to run for office, no doubt about it. I know I can be far more effective behind the scenes. Other people feel like they have to be out there. So, 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 the, so the program sort of build every class builds every weekend builds on, on, on the the last, to the point where you get to the end and it all comes together. Um, we start actually at the Center for Creative Leadership, and we um, uh, look at what our behaviors and motivators are. We take a DISC assessment, which is a pretty common uh, personality tool. So everybody understands from the very beginning what it says about themselves, and then we do a little exercise where we sort of get everybody to you know, stand in the room uh, in relationship to others and the scores they got on various measures. So they begin to understand where their classmates rank as well. So that's kind of the, the very, very beginning. And then by the end, 
you know, they, they know their classmates so well, and there's such respect for their classmates and, and, and where they've where they've been. That this, this is really, uh, I hate to say lifelong friendships, but it, it's really amazing to watch how close these students get and how they continue that for, for years beyond. Where, where I've had students say, Students say, gee, you know, um, my, my friend John, making that name up, is running for uh, city council in X city. He's a Republican. Uh, uh, I'm a Democrat, I'm, but I'm going to help him raise money, and I'm going to help him get elected because I know who he is. I know what he's about. That's powerful. Well, see, that that you just, that seems to be really key to the work, though, is, is, is that sort of – but you just touched on that relationship building – Beyond mm-hmm. beyond whatever label, like beyond what to say with what you had with John Hood, whatever labels you had on him, you got to know him. Exactly, and and I think that's what this course really does is relationships, and and and, and it can it can be you know, people can say oh relationships that's, that's very trite, but but isn't that what it's all about? I mean, in every in every aspect of our lives is is, is relating to people, how well you listen, how well you understand how you interact and re- relate with someone, isn't that really the key to, to, to a lot of life? And I think certainly when it comes to, comes to, to uh, well, to politics, but just, I, I just think relationships are, are critical. Um, and it's really, I, again, it's, it's, it's my philosophy. I think it's, I think it's, you know, the, it's central to, 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 to everything. So, yeah, they, they really do learn how to, how to interact. And it's, it's interesting to see sometimes they come in, Sometimes people are very shy, and, and even in the interview process, we'll recognize that although that person on the surface seems to be very shy, here's what he or she could really bring to the class as a whole. You know, we, we try to accept a class that's very well balanced in terms of political affiliations and personalities and experiences and ages and all those kinds of things to really build, bring a class together, and they're not all alike. They are definitely not all alike, but, but watching them form those relationships and bond and respect each other is, is really fascinating to watch. I, I was wondering uh, if you thought um, uh, much of our political discourse today, uh, since you've, ha- you've had uh, some, uh, quite a big experience with campaigns, mm-hmm. is our discourse very similar to negative campaigning in that we bemoan its existence, but if it were truly an abomination, candidates would cease and desist? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's it's it, it's always been that way. I mean, I've been involved in politics for 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 years, and and there's always been, uh, you know, the the uh, disdain, so to speak, for for the other person's or the candidate's point of view, or or a certain staff person's you know support of that candidate. That that's always been part of it, I suppose. It's, it's almost like um, I hate to liken it to college sports. That's another thing that I'm very interested in, but. But but you know I went to Duke, so do I so you, really hate every? Do I really hate everybody that went to Carolina? No, I, I don't. But but during that basketball game, you know I want Duke to win. Right. Um, you know, but um, so so I, I think the thing that that hopefully what you see is that once it's all over, that 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 you can realize that we we've, we've, we've got to be all on the same team. So um, for example, after the election, um, uh, which was. Uh, I think surprising for for a lot of folks, and uh, uh, everyone said, "What are you going to tell your class? What are you going to tell your class?" And so I thought about it, and then I, I got up uh, in front of the class that, that the next time we met, and uh, actually it was at the end of the class. I let the everything kind of kind of proceed for the weekend as it did, and I just said, "You know, everybody wanted to know what I was going to say to you guys, and so here's what I'm going to say, and here's what I really believe, and you know what my persuasion is, and you know I didn't vote for Mr. Trump." But let me tell you, we're all on this same airplane together right now. We are all on the same airplane. We do not want this pilot to crash the plane. It affects all of us. And, and I really believe that. And, and what, what disappoints me is, is I've heard so many people say, or not so many people have said, well, you know, they'll see who they elected or you know, we'll see what happens. Well, you don't want him to fail. <laughs> if, 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 he, if he succeeds and he wins, we all win. So... You know, the people have spoken. That's what a democracy is. That's the way our democracy is. The people have spoken. So let's get on with it. You know, we have a new president. Let's support him and, and, and hope he does well, because that means we all do well. And I really mean that. I really do. I'm very sincere when I say that. Well, um, to a point, I, 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 don't, I just want to know if, did you, uh, were you uh, upset 
when Villanova hit that three pointer. <laughs> I, I just I'm just trying to see how 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 uh, committed are you to, are you to these ideals? I mean, we, did did you lose sleep that night? I just <laughs> you know I was in a room with a lot of Carolina people, and I was trying to at the very end I was like, oh look at that shot. Well, oh my goodness, look at that shot. And when the Villanova shot went in, I was absolutely quiet, realizing the situation that I was in, and I very quietly got up and left. <laughs> I figured okay. it was the best thing I could do. Okay. Um, uh, and I slept well that night. I was going to uh, say, but, but, not one <laughs> fist pump in the air, just not one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but again, you know, it, 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 I don't mean to be trite. That's right. a basketball game, and right. this, is, this is our country. Right. There, there, no, of course there, not. I couldn't, re- I couldn't resist when you had to do Oh, I know you could. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. But, 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 I, but I, and again, not to be, not to be trite, but, but they're, they're, you know, to a certain extent, you know, it's, I, mean, I realize the stakes are different, but uh, I really do realize the stakes are different. Uh, um, all I'm trying to say is just that uh, it, it, here, here's where we are, and 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 uh, you know, we need to work together to, to to make it better. And by refusing to do that or hoping that something else happens, just isn't constructive. It's just not. What in the work um, that you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Uh, in the in the work that you do, coupled mm-hmm. with um, sort of the the norm now for us to go to the inform—I refuse to call them news sites, but the information sites that sort of support what we already believe. Yeah. Do you see our discourse? Are candidates and, and elected officials essentially, in your view, mirroring our desires? Mirroring our desires. To, I mean, like, sorry. If, like. If 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 we were not at some point okay with sort of that political rancor, if we if we really were, if we weren't okay with negative campaign, we we you know they would hear from us. So are, are we not at least subliminally saying this is okay? Well, but don't don't you think some people were saying this time it's not okay? I mean, I mean, I, what I hear is one of the things that I noticed was I think people were just instead of. I know they were listening to both sides, but they were so ready for this "quote unquote" campaign season to be over with because they were so tired of the complaining. So I, I don't think people, I don't think people are happy with with what it is. Um, I really don't. I don't think people are, are happy about about the uh, 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 the the yelling and screaming, and I don't think people are happy with that at all. And I think people do want that to change. Um, um, you know, the question is, how do we do it? And I, I don't have the answer, um, but, but I, but I um, what I tell my students, like as, as I said to you before, if, if, if I can help 40 of you every year you know, understand this, that, that we can do better and we'll be a lot more effective by doing it this way, and you touch another 10 or 20 people, um, hopefully, we, make some, hopefully we, we, get, we begin to see some of the change that we want. I don't have that answer. Uh, we're we're in a we're in a uh, a bad spot. I mean, I'm gonna say, I'm not gonna say an all time low, but I think a lot of people feel it's never been worse, and I don't have the answer to that. Um, but I don't think anybody likes it. I haven't heard of anybody that likes it. For those listening, um, uh, how how might uh, someone get involved with IOPL? Yes. Or, or, or well, we have a website. It's uh, org. Uh, and we recruit for our classes twice a year, our um, January class, or our spring class, rather, we call it the January class, uh, begins in a couple of weeks. Uh, and we do have some spots available if someone is interested in talking to us. Um, it's very easy to go online and, and say, you know, contact us. Uh, the next class begins the middle of August. Uh, that's for the fellows. We also have a program. It's a one-day workshop just for women who are interested in being appointed to a board in their communities, and that's called the Women on Board Program. It is a wonderful workshop, a wonderful workshop. Um, so they can also inquire about that online as well. Ross Harris, Executive Director of the North Carolina Institute of Political Leadership, thank you for being Byron, on the public. thank you so much. Oh, we enjoyed good. it. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you very much. All right. That was Ross Harris. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. Is it mere coincidence that the same week that Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Circus announced that after 146 years, 
the greatest show on earth will close its doors for good and Donald J. Trump will become the nation's 45th president. For his part, Trump does appear to possess a P.T. Barnum persona, but the carnival atmosphere that's becoming increasingly pervasive within our public discourse is not Trump's to bear alone. It feels as though we're living out the words made famous by Buffalo Springfield in 1966. What a field day for the heat. Thousand people in the streets, singing songs and carrying sign, mostly say hooray for our side. That's where we've become. Only the side we align is right. Everyone else is wrong. It justifies those who question the legitimacy of the president-elect. The number of congressional Democrats who will not attend the inauguration is telling. It's sad, but certainly to be expected, given the ongoing campaign to delegitimize President Obama throughout his two terms of office. But it's not just there. The president-elect's seemingly uncontrollable impulse to respond to any criticism via Twitter is unprecedented, as is BuzzFeed's decision to publish unverified documents that are unflattering to the president-elect and still maintain that they are a journalistic institution. Yes, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear, but it is certainly not the path toward that more perfect union. Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located on our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast, which is located on iTunes. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.